When you think about it, what stitches the events of the last three months together is breath. One could make that argument anyway, right? I mean, I mean, we've got this virus that attacks the respiratory system, collects on mucosal tissue, tissues, does weird things to respiration so that uh, blood oxygen levels fall, sometimes without patients even having typical shortness of breath symptoms. Okay, so that's one over there. To say nothing of the fact that there's like a black market in pulse oximeters right now. But anyway, that's over there. Then over here, uh, we have the recent period uh, of racial troubles that were triggered, in fact, by a man saying, I can't breathe. Not the first man. We have a debate over chokeholds uh, that do cut off the breath and that do result in fatalities. So, yes, to the extent that one crisis has compounded another crisis, you could argue that breath is the common denominator. And that, in fact, is what we're going to talk about today. Towards the end of the show, we will talk, talk very specifically about breath and these issues with commentator Dahlia Lithwick. But right now, we're going to, we're going to talk about breath itself. Uh, and there's just, I mean, first of all, I always think that if there are extraterrestrials watching us, they are amazed that we're the dominant species on our planet. I mean, I feel like they're up there in their ship going, wow, they don't eat right. They don't drink enough water. Most of them don't get enough exercise. And it turns out also they don't really breathe correctly. <laughs> I mean, you know, for the form of the carbon-based form that they are, it's like they don't get what they have to do. Uh, and I've learned so much about breathing from this book by our guest, uh, James Nestor. His book is Breath. The New Science of a Lost Art, and he joins us today. Hi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, yes, I mean, even though the extraterrestrials are up there disparaging us, <laughs> it could be argued, and you do argue, that the breath thing, it, it, you know, we're doing it wrong, but it's not entirely our fault. It's actually a product of the same evolutionary process that resulted in the increased brain capacity that allowed us, in other ways, to become a dominant species. So what was happening to our uh, the, the structural a aspects of our breathing apparatus? while that was happening well that was certainly a part of it so about a million and a half years ago we started processing food and by, by that we started smashing prey against rocks to make it easier to chew and so all that extra energy that we saved from chewing allowed us to grow a larger brain and around 800,000 years ago we started cooking things in fire released more energy less chewing and so we, we adopted all of these changes, these morphological changes in our faces, just fine. Our faces grew flatter, our mouths grew smaller, our sinuses grew smaller. But until around 500 years ago, when the food got so processed, so soft, that's when things started really changing for the worse and impacting our ability to breathe properly. Now, explain again why that would be the case. What would be the connection between chewing and breathing? So a lot of people have associated the problems with industrialized, uh, highly processed food with lack of vitamins and minerals. And that's certainly true to a certain extent. But most of the problems tied to the mouth and our ability to grow a mouth that's the proper size for our face uh, comes down to chewing because we need that stress. We've evolved to need the stress to build the right bones, to build the right muscles and ligaments and everything else to, to be able to grow a mouth that is of the proper size. And what I mean by that is that if you think about um, yourself or most people around you, there's a good chance about 90% of them 
are going to have crooked teeth or they had crooked teeth before they had braces. So that's not normal at all. The reason why so many humans now have crooked teeth is because our mouths are too small. So teeth have nowhere to go in but crooked. The other problem with that is that a mouth that's too small also has a smaller airway. And this is one of the reasons so many of us snore, sleep apnea, and have other respiratory problems because of that shrinking mouth. Um, this The whole explanation of this in the book, which we can't even do justice to, is fascinating. Although I have to say, as somebody whose DNA tests are fairly high for Neanderthal content, I did not appreciate the phrase big-nosed Neanderthals. Um, you know, that was meant as a compliment because to have a big, powerful nose, um, as I get into in the book, is, is the first line of defense to protect us against pathogens, to allow us to breathe more properly. So that, our Neanderthal brethren, um, I only... Uh, talk in the in the highest regard for them. Well, you say that you took our land, man. We want Europe back. Um, oh, they're coming right. back. You know, give give, <laughs> give it two hundred years. That's right. Particularly if we keep breathing in this the way that we're breathing right now. So the central argument of your book is that a the way that we breathe currently, the sort of natural habit that we fall into is deleterious to our health on multiple fronts, and that for thousands of years there has been science and research and wisdom uh, about all this, most of which somehow or other hasn't become canonical, hasn't really at least become part of the Western medical canon. But maybe you want to amplify that statement a little bit. Sure. And, and I'm a journalist, right? I went into this world with a completely objective view. It doesn't matter to me if, you know, mouths have grown smaller because of one reason or the other. But, but I talk to the experts in this field. And if you were to look, it's, it's so obvious. Once you, you learn this stuff, you're like, well, of course, this is what happens. Because look at, at any ancient skull, any skull older than about 500 years old, um, down to 5,000 years old, 50,000 years, 500,000 years old, you, all of your Neanderthal brethren, and they're going to have, there's a very good chance they're going to have perfectly straight teeth. These people didn't have dentists, they didn't have Invisalign, they didn't have their wisdom teeth removed, and yet they had straight teeth. And by having those straight teeth, by, by that regard, they had these huge jaws, and by having these huge jaws, they had larger nasal apertures. So this sounds like some fringy theory, but it's really not. It's, it's so clearly documented in the skeletal record. So we're going to go deeper into this, but I, I would be remiss if we didn't just pause and say, you wrote this book, obviously, before the outbreak of COVID-19. <laughs> it must be so odd doing interviews like this one in support of this book at a time when, yeah, I mean, for example, pulse oximeters uh, play a recurring role in your book, in some of the scenes in your book, the whole, the whole sense of breath and blood oxygen levels and stuff like that, much of which is at the heart. Uh, of the symptomatic presentation of COVID-19. And maybe a little bit more pertinently, you know, in these high-tech hospital environments, one of the first things they figured out that worked wasn't some kind of elaborate pharma invention or a piece of tech. It was really kind of an old thing called proning. Uh, I'm guessing that that didn't surprise you. <laughs> Well, I, I remember when I first started this book about three and a half, four years ago. Um, that's how long it's it's taken me to get this thing together. I was telling my friends, my other author friends, journalists, I said, I'm going to write this book on, on breath, on breathing. And they all mocked me. <laughs> they, they said, you know, I've been breathing my whole life. I don't need to be told how to breathe or, or how I'm breathing incorrectly. And now that the tide has really turned. And what's been so gratifying for me is, 
you know, I went out and talked to so many experts who had been doing this research for 20, 30, even 40 years studying this stuff. No one had really been listening. And if there's one good thing to come out of this foul, foul epidemic, it's that people are really starting to pay attention to their breathing. And proning is, is just a perfect example. So 2,000 years ago, Chinese doctors were, were telling people to always sleep on their sides. And, and about 80 years ago, a Russian cardiologist told his patients with, with pneumonia, said, always sleep on your side. He would tape a tennis ball or a ball on their back so they couldn't sleep on their back. And so it's, it's fascinating to see just three weeks ago, you know, we discovered, hey, it makes sense for us to, to breathe on our sides or breathe on our stomachs, considering that when we take a breath in, most of that inflation from our lungs is in our back. It's not in our chest. So um, just seeing that one little tweak and, and the huge benefits from it um, it's, this is no new science, you know, this stuff has been around for a long time. It's just people are starting to look to the past, what's working, worked in the past to help us get through, through this thing in the future. So, um, there's so much to ask here. So yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff that's in your book is now uh, might've seemed a little bit odd or off the beaten path at the time. Uh, but it's kind of just part of the fabric of life now. I mean, even there's sort of a hardcore nasal swab scene at the beginning of the book. Um, you know, and people complain about the nasal swab tests for the PCR test for COVID-19. Uh, yours involved actually going in there with, well, you said it was like kind of a little wire brush going deep, deep, deep into your nose. We should say you did a lot of stuff. This is one of these books where you put yourself through some of the research that you're writing about. Well, I wanted to understand the subject from the inside. And with some of these tests, no one else would really do them. That that test in particular, I was talking to the chief of rhinology research at Stanford, this guy named Dr. Jayakar Nayak, who's fascinated with the nose and all the benefits of nasal breathing. And he knew it's, it's clearly defined how bad mouth breathing is for, for the body, for immune system, for sleep, for everything. And I asked him, I said, well, how soon does that damage come on? And he had no idea because nobody had tested it. So we cooked up this experiment in which for, for 10 days, I, I tested it with me and one other person um, to, to plug our noses and just breathe through our mouths. And, and the intention of this wasn't to do like this super size me stunt, you know, it was to lull ourselves into a position that 25 to 50% of the population are already understands because they habitually mouth breathe and to really see what was happening. And so that's what we did 10 days, nose plugged. It was awful. And that, that test you're referring to. So imagine that COVID test, but imagine that brush being wire and imagine that being in your nose about three or four inches. <laughs> Truly awful. Um, but, but in the name of science, you know, we, we went forward and, and did it. So 10 days, mouth breathing, 10 days nasal breathing, then we compare the data sets. So yeah, let's uh, yeah, what's worth uh, mentioning is, is towards the end of the book, you kind of get your grades back, but you already, <laughs> you and the guy you're doing it with, Anders Olsen, you kind of already know what you're going to see more or less, but it is really pretty startling that so many indices of, uh, of ill health are ratcheted up when your nose is plugged and your mouth is open and brought back down when your mouth is plugged and your nose is open. But maybe mention a, a few of those because mm -hmm. they're, they're all the things that many of us are taking medications for right now mm -hmm. as opposed to learning to breathe. Well, things like blood pressure, that had been pretty well documented. Mouth breathing, you're breathing too much, your blood pressure is going to go up. So, you know, my blood pressure went up about 15 points, 20 points. Um, and, and so we, we expected those things to happen. We weren't looking forward to those things happening, but they happened. But what we did not expect 
at all was that both of us had gone from not snoring at all, actually about three minutes a night, to snoring about four hours a night within three or four days of this experiment. We both got sleep apnea. Uh, we were fatigued the whole time. And so I don't think a lot of people who are snoring and have sleep apnea, especially mild to moderate sleep apnea and snoring, I don't think they're really realizing how much of, of the ways in which they inhale and exhale that air plays into those conditions. And we found that, that the day that we started nasal breathing at night instead of mouth breathing, snoring, sleep apnea totally went away. Within three or four days, we had zero snoring, zero sleep apnea. So it, it, to me, that was fascinating. This was something nobody expected. And, and I hope to get, you know, and Stanford's hoping to get the word out about this as well, how important nasal breathing is just to be able to breathe at night. But there's there's so much more in in the book, and a lot of it is once again sort of kind of non canonical stuff, often by often conducted by people who aren't at prestigious research uh, institutions, uh, and often with really really interesting results. Uh, there's a character named Carl Stowe. I don't know if I'm saying that last name correctly, mm -hmm. but since a lot of his research happened not too far from where I'm sitting right now, here mm -hmm. in Connecticut, both at uh, the West Haven VA Hospital and then uh, at Yale, uh, maybe you could just mention a little bit about what this guy found and it sort of starts with emphysema emphysema is kind of notoriously incurable but that doesn't mean you can't find more breathing capacity for somebody with emphysema well i think that that's what's interesting about these outlier researchers right they have they're coming from such a different place than people who have been traditionally medically trained that they're able to look at things differently and stow was a vocal teacher he he uh, was a choral conductor and he taught his singers how to sing better and started winning all these competitions, started training the uh, opera singers at, at Met Opera in New York. And then he was called in after doing this for years and years to help emphysemics at the VA hospitals. And just as you had said, these people had essentially been left for, for dead, you know, pumped up with antibiotics, given an oxygen tank and just sort of left in the hospital because no one knew how to, how to cure them or how to help them. So he went in and developed this breathing technique basically to build their diaphragmatic movement, to build that muscle organ up a little more. And he was told repeatedly that doing that is impossible. You cannot build movement in the diaphragm. Totally impossible. Well, they took x-rays, they took films, and uh, not impossible, totally possible. So what happens with emphysema is once that lung tissue is damaged, you can't get it back, but that doesn't mean you can't access more of the lungs. And that's what he did for these patients, allowed them to access more of their lungs. And what was so interesting about him as well is that everything that he was doing was documented. There's data, and there were other scientists backing him up the whole way. But when he left the hospital system after doing this for 10 years, helping thousands and thousands of patients, his therapy was completely ignored. And then, you know, his book, he wrote one self-published or not self-published, wrote one book in 1970. And now it's like 400 bucks on Amazon. <laughs> so, so it's really hidden, hidden far away, but nobody disproved um, what he was doing. They, they never denied that, that the therapy worked. It just sort of disappeared. And I kept finding these stories over and over and over again. Right. We should mention he went from the emphysemics to coaching really elite athletes. I mean, first the Yale track team, but then Olympic athletes and was able to very, very quickly, dramatically improve their performance, you know, with th things as simple as the notion of uh, exhaling. So this book, which is about breath, it is also, I think, very much a book about it's like a Thomas Kuhn uh, reaffirmation that, you know, instead of 
scientific revolutions happening on the basis of the introduction of new evidence orthodoxy kind of chases orthodoxy you know there's, there's a way in which uh, things that just don't really fit the pattern of understand of medical or scientific understanding at a moment got overlooked so yeah you have i mean you have another person who uses breath as uh, a way of dealing with scoliosis which in some ways is an even harder thing to to sort of wrap your mind around yeah, she was um, a teenager living in Dresden, Germany. Her, her name is Katerina Schroth. And uh, she had scoliosis and was, you know, given a wheelchair and, and a cane and, and told to live her life. But she had different views about the human body's potential and developed this thing called orthopedic breathing, where she would breathe into one lung and stretch, and breathe into the other lung and stretch. And she did this for years until she breathed her spine straight again. <laughs> and that sounds completely impossible until you see the pictures and she went on and taught thousands and thousands of other women how to do this it was extremely successful once again medical authorities in germany came in and said you are not qualified to teach anyone they tried to shut her down and at the end of her life you know she lived to be 91 the end of her life the german government awarded her the highest prize for her contributions to medicine so you just see these waves of denial and acceptance and it takes sometimes 20 30 years for the authorities and the institutions to come around and for each of these people you know i didn't just rely on their words i talked to experts in the field i looked at the x-rays and all of this stuff checks out and they're they're currently using Schroth's methods at uh, johns hopkins right now. Um, you know, it's very intensive. Maybe a lot of people don't don't want to do it, but it works. And it just shows you the power of just breathing differently can change the physical structure of your body. All right. So we're going to take a break here. We're talking to James Nestor and we're going to keep talking to him. In fact, when we come back from the break, we're going to tell you things that absolutely could change and possibly save your life. And the main reason I'm saying that is because there's going to be a little pledge break in here. And so I don't want you to go away. Uh, but, but I'm also not entirely kidding either. So, um, and, and one thing I want to say about the pledge break, this is sort of our end of the year balance, the budget stuff. And we've just had a wave of bloodletting all over the landscape of public radio. The economics uh, of 2020 caught up with a lot of companies and stations within public radio. And there's some shows that you really like that we won't have anymore because they've been canceled. But um, for that reason, I mean, we're in better shape than a lot of stations, but it's important and it's been kind of a little little bit slow. I mean, everybody doesn't feel flush right now. So when these nice people come on, please listen to them and please consider pledging. It really does um, matter, especially right now. And then it's a very short little pledge break. Uh, don't go away. We're going to come back with uh, James Nestor telling you more about breathing after this. Hi, I'm Betsy Kaplan, one of the producers for The Colin McEnroe Show, here with Jonathan McNichol, one of the other producers, and Colin McEnroe himself, um, asking you to take a few minutes, as we've been doing, um, to support the station, 1-800-584-2788 or WNPR.org. You know, if you're a regular listener to this station and to this show, you know that we're trying to build a stronger community here. It's all about community. We do local shows. We live in the community. We invite guests on our show who live in the community. We, we receive your email. We communicate with you on social media. 
Uh, we take your phone calls during the shows. We're, it's all about community for us. And we want to be in the community and we want you to be part of it. And part of that is contributing to the station. Um, we can't all do it. Most of us contribute to the station as well. Uh, but we need your support to do that. And believe me, when you do it, you will feel better. You will feel like you belong. It's, it's just like when you're invested in anything. Once you invest in something, you take more interest in it. So give us a call and be part of the community with us. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. Jonathan, I want to call you pants, but Jonathan. <laughs> and one of the odd things about, about doing this is you keep calling me Jonathan McNichol and nobody ever calls me. <laughs> the station. Um, yeah, Betsy, you were talking about community and, and the, the thing that I immediately think of, I, I produced the nose on Fridays, which is our pop culture roundtable uh, that we do every week. And that that whole group of people, all those guests, every single one of them are local folks, uh, part of the communities uh, that we live in, that the station's in, Hartford folks, New Haven folks. That's our little little nose community. And and the reason we have those those people on is because they live here, because they're funny, interesting, good talkers uh, who, who, who have a wide range of interests in popular culture. Um, but but a, a strange part of this whole three-month period that, that we've been going through is we haven't seen any of those people in person in, in any of this time. We've done all these shows by Zoom and by Skype. It's been kind of hard to, to, to not get to see them, to shake their hands, give them hugs, which are things, so who knows when we're going to get to do that again. Um, but we've, we've kept doing the shows anyway. Uh, we, we stay in touch the way we do. We, we put the show on the way we do anyway through this whole period. Yeah. Um, so, so if that's meaningful to people, call 1-800-584-2788. I personally have never hugged anybody from the nose, so I'm not, <laughs> I don't feel like I'm missing anything right now. Uh, you've also, you also never hugged any of us. Or, <laughs> no, yeah, but, no, I haven't either. Well, that's just like even there's HR rules about that. WNPR.org um, is another way that you can donate. And, you know, another thing that we did early on in the process, I said, you know, maybe we also just need a different kind of show than we've been doing, which is something we all say all the time. What if we did something that we'd never done before? So, and I started saying, you know, maybe kind of a long form fireside chat style conversation with somebody like Susan Campbell, where, you know, we wouldn't really have maybe a, as tight an outline as we typically have going into a show. I did the same thing with the film critic, David Edelstein, who grew up around here, whom I've known forever. And, they, and just, just because there's so many things going on in people's lives right now, so many different stimuli that they have to process. Like, what if we just had a conversation about, well, you know, uh, how, how how's the coronavirus affecting you? How are the challenges to journalism affecting you? How is uh, the how are the demonstrations affecting you? So we did that too. So now I'm going to say something that. I <laughs> I'm sure some of the people in the who typically sit in the higher floors of this building, you know, they're never 100% sure they want me to say this. But look, journalism's under attack right now. It is under attack. Uh, the president of the United States has made it emphatically and, and unequivocally clear he doesn't like journalists. Uh, he <laughs> thinks we are the enemies of the people. We are the opposite of that. Um, but we're under attack. And then at the demonstrations, look, I'm not most of the, I know lots of policemen and none of them ever would have done this. But there were cops who attacked journalists, who targeted journalists, who pointed their guns right at journalists and shot rubber bullets at them. So journalism's under attack right now. If journalism is important to you, 
then you got to support it, you know, and this is the way we support public radio by your donations. So 1-800-584-2788. Yes, it's important. Yes, we're under attack. Yes, we need to understand that you care and you will support us. You can also donate online at WNPR.org. And it's important not only because you like and enjoy us, but also because this institution is facing challenges that it has never faced before that in many ways the press in America has never uh, faced before. So if you care and you donate, thank you. We are so, so grateful. All right, and we are back. We are pleased to be back with this show uh, based on this really fascinating book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor. He, the author, is with us right now. We'll also be talking to um, old friend Dahlia Lithwick in a little while, uh, also about the role breath has played in the national narrative right now. You know, I mean, we, we've talked a little bit uh, about some of these uh, outliers, outlier researchers, uh, outlier discoverers of te- techniques that exist kind of side by side with the mostly Western medical canon. But James Nestor, the other, another part of your book is about older traditions, older traditions that precede the Western medical canon and most other stuff as well. Anybody who's taken a lot of yoga or even a little yoga probably knows that. And I should say that I took like for about five years, I was very, very, very intensively into yoga. And it's not unusual for the teacher to say, you know, yoga is basically breath. And the other stuff is just stuff we're getting, getting you to do. <laughs> we get you to breathe. Um, and, and this is something that you found, right? That over and over again, there, there has been, uh, over the course of thousands of years, a lot of writing about the connection between breath and well-being. You can look at almost any major culture for the last few thousand years. Uh, you know, it arguably started with in the Indus Valley 5,000 years ago, this understanding of breath being this medicine or this tool. Then it popped up in, in China about 2,000 years ago. Then the ancient Greeks, you know, got into it. Um, and, and on and on and on. What I found was fascinating. Once you placed all these pieces together and connected the dots, they were all discovering the same exact thing. And I don't think many of them had contact with one another, but they all came to the same conclusions about breathing. And, you know, they didn't have pulse oximeters back then. They weren't able to test exactly what was happening in their bodies and their, and their blood gases. But, you know, they had empirical studies. They were able to, to form their own technology by seeing what was benefiting people and what wasn't. And the fact that they all came to these same techniques I thought was fascinating. And now to see these techniques being studied in labs with all of this wonderful technology that we have and seeing the profound benefits these breathing techniques have, I think is just adds credence to so much of what they had been saying for so long. Um, we won't have time to go through all of this, but one of the more fascinating traditions that you 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 stepped into, and I may be pronouncing it wrong, is tummo or tumo, something that's mm-hmm. both ancient and also in a, a lot of modern use, including by the Navy SEALs, who we don't necessarily associate with in, enlightened breathing practices. But so tell us about uh, tumo or tummo. They, so about a thousand years ago, um, this was documented, this breathing technique that allowed monks to stay warm uh, during the winter time. They could only wear like a thin sheet on and, and heat themselves through breathing, which of course sounds completely fallacious. And this, this lady, um, Alexander David Neal, 
uh, Parisian, went out to Tibet and discovered this and wrote about it in this amazing book called My Journeys to Lhasa about her 14 years. And no one really believed it then. So as more people went to India and went to Tibet and started seeing monks doing this, part of their initiation was they would have to sit outside in the snow overnight and breathe in a way that would melt a circle around them. Then they would come back in in the morning. Impossible, right? Um, so Herbert Benson, who was a Harvard researcher, had heard enough of these stories. He said, okay, I'm going to go test this out. So he went to India, hooked up these monks to every imaginable sensor, and had them breathe in this way, and witnessed an absolute transformation in their bodies. They were able to dry wet sheets on their back in a cold room within about a half an hour. They were able to heat up the extremities in their, their fingers, their toes by about 17 degrees, and they were able to slow their metabolic rates by about 65%. So, I mean, this is, according to what we know about medical science, totally impossible. And yet there's the data, there's the videotape. Um, so now Wim Hof, which some of the listeners may have heard of, has taken this, this Tumo breathing and really exploded it and shown hundreds of thousands of people to do it. And now they're recording that uh, what a significant benefit it has, especially for people with autoimmune problems and, and autonomic nervous system issues, uh, how it can rebalance them and help them really recover. And what's, what's fascinating to me is, you know, they're studying this at, at Stanford, they're studying it at, at top universities, and there's real data behind it. It's not just hearsay or anecdotal. You know, I, I do think, uh, uh, maybe this is a tiny bit off the track, but I don't think so. So there's obviously, you know, in the last 20 to 30 years, there's been a yoga revolution in America. But, you know, Americans tend to treat yoga as a kind of fitness. Uh, and I myself will plead guilty during my years to thinking, oh, when is all this pranayama stuff going to be over so we can really, you know, start doing something? Uh, and I think for a lot of people in these classes, you know, they're there to stretch and build muscle tone and stuff like that. And so the breathing stuff, particularly the alternating nostril stuff, which you really get into in the book and which I used to regard as incredibly boring and waiting for it to be over. It, it is, I think, possible that there are a lot of people doing yoga and giving kind of, you should pardon the expression, lip service to breath without really embracing the kinds of stuff that you're talking about. So the yoga we we know now that we practice now the vinyasa flow all these movements that's about 100 years old okay so be, before 100 years ago there were not these these flows these flow movements and we we know these flow movements these these have massive benefits you're going to look good you're going to get healthier it, totally but the the benefits are very similar to other exercise so the first yoga was about sitting down and focusing on your breath and then as it evolved about 2,000 years ago, you would pose, hold these poses for minutes at a time and breathe. So the entire anchor to this was to stretch your bodies in ways so that you could breathe in different ways and fall into that meditative state. So I'm convinced that the vast majority of benefits from meditation, especially at the beginning, are from breathing. You don't need to you know, recite your mantra. You can do that. That's that's great. But the benefits of slowing down and focusing on your breath while thinking about whatever you want to think about are profound. And that's been well studied as well. So, um, you know, a lot of the things that we're talking about right now are things that you personally have done. As I said before, I mean, this book begins with you 
fortunate you're fortunate enough to live in San Francisco or were at the time, <laughs> so you could go to a breathing class, which is not necessarily available everywhere. Uh, and that kind of woke you up in a certain way. Uh, you, I think, are still doing kind of an online Tumo thing on Monday nights or something. I mean, I, I don't know. How much have you personally changed by all this? How, how changed do you feel or can you demonstrate that you are? Well, as a science journalist, you know, you just want to go in and talk to the experts and try to stay out of the story as much as you possibly can. So the facts are completely straight and objective. But after spending three years in this community, talking to these experts, these scientists, visiting these labs, you get kind of emotionally invested in this. You see the benefits of an asthmatic who's had asthma for 50 years, changed her breathing, now has no symptoms of asthma. And that's been measured. Someone who's who's lowered his CRPs by 40 fold within a few weeks by changing his breathing. You, you figure I would be a, a fool not to adopt some of these techniques in, in my own lifestyle. And, and what I tried to do with, with a lot of these uh, in these labs and in these studies was to be able to see the effects of breathing in different ways in my own body. And, and then compare that to what's actually happening in the science. So it's not just anecdotes. You're, you're looking at the science as a whole. But, but I want to experience this stuff. So it makes you a bit of a neurotic, you know, after, after three years of learning about how, how unhealthy mouth breathing is and how healthy other, other forms of breathing, nasal breathing is. Um, but at, at the same time, it's, to me, it's just more tools in the toolkit. I, I look at breathing as these different levers. Uh, you know, we're not able to control our liver function or stomach function or our bowels, but, but we can control the way in which we breathe. When we control the way in which we breathe, we can influence all of those functions down to the you know, subatomic level of what's happening in our cells. And, and that to me is fascinating. This is something we do 25,000 times a day. And if, if you think that you can just get by you know, doing it incorrectly, you know, your body can compensate in a lot of ways, but, but why do that? You, you want to allow your breaths to be as easy and as enriching as possible, and, and your body will really benefit from that. All right, we're going to have to stop there. And a lot of times with interviews like this, you'll hear the host say, but you really have to read the whole book. And a lot of times we do that just out of a courtesy to the author because we don't want people to feel like now they don't have to read the book because they heard the interview. It really is the case with this book. You have to read the whole book. You're not going to get uh, so much of, of what you really want to and need to understand if this subject intrigues you. So the book is Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor. Thanks for joining, joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with an old friend with a new subject, Dahlia Lithwick. All right, so we are back, and it is time for me to say some thank yous. Uh, those thank yous go to Cat Pastor, who's there in the studio, making it possible for me to work remotely and for the producer, executive producer, senior producer, uh, Betsy Kaplan, who is the producer of this episode. Uh, so thanks to Cat. Thanks to Betsy for putting this uh, thing together here. Uh, and thanks to you also if you're supporting. This is the last day of our tiny little three-day pledge drive, just to see if we can sort of balance the books, as they say. Uh, so thanks to you if you're supporting that, too. Um, all right, Dahlia Lithwick has been on our show many, many times, senior editor for Slate. Um, we would have been trying to book her anyway today, like everybody else is, because of the DACA decision, which we're probably 
going to have to quickly talk about it. It would be crazy to have Dahlia Lithwick on and not talk about the Dahlia, about, about, the, uh, about the DACA decision. See, the Dahlias and the DACAs, they can get all mixed up in your head very easily. Uh, but we're also talking to her about a piece titled America Gasps for Air in Slate. And Dahlia, um, I mean, in a way, we can add DACA to this pretty easily, right? There's a way in which you're using this idea of breath, whether it's the damage that COVID-19 does or the damage a chokehold does to a kind of airlessness and lack of oxygenated nourishment that you see running through uh, the American narrative right now. I think that's right, Colin. And, and weirdly, um, as DACA was coming down and I was reading the opinion this morning uh, and sort of anticipating this conversation about breath, I thought this is a funny ultimate conclusion because while those 700,000 dreamers who are not going to be deported, at least not now, uh, based on this 5-4 decision, can certainly take in a breath and, and realize they're here. Uh, the court also left them hanging and said, but if the Trump administration tries and properly rescinds DACA, we might be able to do this. And so there's a weird way in which breathing also feels like it runs through this decision where you can't actually breathe out and say, we're safe. You just have to wait and hope the next administration doesn't do it right. Right. I mean, we could force this uh, this metaphor even more and say that, well, first of all, we do spend a lot of time hoping that Ruth Bader Ginsburg keeps breathing. Oh, uh, a, lot of, a lot of us are, hold, are holding our breath. We're holding our, our breaths about this decision. Uh, people who wanted Elizabeth Warren are being told to hold their noses and vote for Biden. I mean, there's sort of a lot of this stuff that we, we go through. But let's sort of back up and say that there is a way in which the two major crises of 2020, COVID-19 uh, and, and the George Floyd murder and everything that's piled on top of that, they, they have breath at the center of them in, in a very odd way. And maybe we can start with George Floyd because, you know, even, I don't know, back in reading the transcript even of his last words, you just, there's something very primal about the fact that he can't breathe and he's saying he can't breathe. And at a certain point, he knows he's in all, all probability dying. I don't know. There's, there's something just so inarguable, inarguably horrible about that. Yeah. I, I, at the end of the piece about breath, I put, I put his last words uh, almost in a poem form, just because I, I felt that in and of itself, those words over and over again, I cannot breathe, I cannot breathe, they're going to kill me, I can't breathe. Um, it felt like it, I mean, beyond just the atrocity of the murder itself, it felt like it was directly mapping onto something deep that everybody is feeling, not just when the police are kneeling on your neck, but as you said, through this pandemic, wearing these masks, cities on fire it really resonated way beyond just the, the the absolute horror of his own death right and and so i mean as we switch over to COVID, yeah i mean even now we are about to have a weekend here in Connecticut, I don't even really want, want to mention this because the people who are doing it are doing this incredibly dangerous thing for very immature reasons. But there are people who want to have like, a, I'm not wearing a mask day. Um, and there, But there is a way in which 
And, and what's especially insane about this is that these are the same people who were demonstrating honking their horns uh, during the shutdown because of its effect on their small businesses. Now they want to do something that may cause another shutdown. But but there's a way in which you at least sort of get the idea that they don't like the mask, partly because they feel stifled by the mask. Uh, and, and as you, you were just suggesting, that's you know, that is another part of the story of this year. Yeah, it, it's, I think for me, I read yesterday, and I can't remember where it's happening, that folks are, are actually planning to burn their masks uh, on mass in some kind of political statement. And I thought it's, it's, it's such a right doubling down. Not only are you refusing to wear your mask, but you're actually going to fill the sky with smoke um, from burning masks. And, and uh, there is a sense in which, and I guess this is what I was trying to flick at in that piece, that for me, this breathing thing is, is so much about interconnectedness. And I breathe in what you breathe out. I mean, everything we are now learning about COVID is that it's these aerosolized particles that are really what, you know, where the action is much more so than touching things. And I I guess for me, the idea of I am an island, I stand alone, I want my face to be seen, I um, refuse to, to cover up. It's so defiant of everything we know just about the science of this pandemic, but also just what it is to come together as a society, right? Like you're only as safe as the last person who breathed into your face and and the refusal to wear a mask sort of seems to be magical thinking and hoping that maybe nobody sneezes on you. But it it feels very, very solipsistic and self-involved in a way that's that's kind of hard to wrap your head around if you believe that we come together, we left the caves, (laughs) we left like the bonking each other with bats in order to do something beyond just, I want the world to see my face. Right. Uh, No, you put that so beautifully. Um, And, you know, there's, of course, another way that it flips over into the unrest of this summer, and that is that uh, demonstrators were so so frequently assailed with things that inhibited their breathing, or I mean, that's actually kind of a euphemism, uh, and that we wind up having these bizarre conversation about what's tear gas. Like, it's not tear gas if it doesn't say Acme tear gas on on the side of the canister. Both uh, William Barr and members of the Trump administration were trying to claim that that despite the fact that people are gasping and their eyes are watering and they're vomiting, that they haven't been tear gassed. Um, you know, you go back to the to the poetry uh, of Wilfred Owen from World War One. There is a way in which that idea of gassing people once again in this very visceral way gets at the very nature uh, of life. Yeah. And it's you know, I was listening to your conversation with your last guest and I've also um really fallen hard into my yoga practice in the last uh, few months, Colin, uh, because uh, of all the the things you talked about. And I, I guess I should confess too that I get pneumonia almost once a year and have terrible asthma. So I'm one of those people who's really vulnerable to, you know, cities that are, that are burning and to tear gas and to um, this disease. And so I'm I sort of come at it from a posture of I wish I could stride around and say that I am immune to everything, but it's just not physiologically the case for me. And so then I do become really, really acutely attuned to the kinds of things that you're describing. And and when, 
you have park police or unmarked badged guards going around spraying pepper spray into crowds and saying, oh, this is an organic agent. It's not a chemical uh, tear gas. Therefore, it's okay that there are people in this park, including journalists, uh, but peaceful protesters who can't breathe. It does feel like the metaphor is really punching you in the neck. I mean, it's it's hard to miss that these internecine legal conversations about whether or not it was in fact tear gas is beside the point if there are people who legitimately can't breathe. Right. I think we eventually established that tear gas is tear gas. I mean, it's not like a really specific thing. It's the thing that makes you have a tear gas. It's the symptom, not the the particular thing that's get gets delivered. And yeah, I mean, just to toggle back and forth a little bit. I mean, with COVID nineteen, one of the other struggles was were people appropriately protected when they went into these frontline situations? Did they have the respirators? Did they have uh, the appropriate protective equipment so that their own breathing apparatus, even as they you know were delivered care to other people severely respiratorily compromised uh, or delivering goods and merchandise uh, and needed stuff uh, to people uh, and unneeded stuff probably too to people were they adequately protected and and once again that came down really once again to the linings of our lungs yeah and it's funny what, what you just mentioned reminds me of the fact that one of the things I wrote in that piece about being able to breathe was that it's breathlessness is about scarcity, right? It's about this thing that you go through, you move through life convinced you will always have the next breath. And it's not like other ailments in that I think we take for granted, all of us, that we are always going to be able to breathe. And in some ways for me, it really dovetailed not just with, you know, the insanity of not being able to get PPE for frontline workers, the doctors and nurses, you know, people stocking shelves, people working in old folks' homes. But that idea of scarcity that the richest country in the world didn't have enough, didn't have enough and couldn't procure enough. And that the giving out of that equipment became this politicized, capitalistic, weird, you know, who's friends with Jared Kushner race to the bottom. And I think mm. for me, I guess I also thought this issue of not being able to breathe in this moment also just seems to flow from ignoring climate change, ignoring. Yes. And Dahlia, you know, I would asthma. love to go into that. I would love to go into that. Unfortunately, I'm literally out of time. I hate to, <laughs> okay. I hate to interrupt Dahlia Lithwick. We're not out of breath, but we are out of time. Thank you very much for listening today. You're going to be asked to support this show and the station. Please, please answer the bell. Hi, I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Jonathan Mac uh, here with Jonathan McNichol and Colin McEnroe asking you to take a few minutes from the show to support the station. You know, this what you're hearing on the station, not just our show, but the station in general, is really different from some of the other stations that you might listen to. You know, we have a lot of TVs in our studio when we're there. And if you look at the different stations that play stories, you'll see that everybody plays a different story and everybody has a different angle. You trust us. If you listen to this station, you trust us to bring you the stories that are important. And I think we do that on all of our local shows as well. This isn't something that you get everywhere. You tune in because you get that. You like that. You trust us to bring you that. And you also trust the voices that you hear. We're familiar and trusted voices, whether it's the voices that you hear on our show or whether it's the reporters or anyone else that uh, from the TV or anything else, anywhere else that's coming from the station. 
So if if you so maybe you don't realize how important we are to you, and maybe you do, maybe in this pandemic, realize that as you're cut off from some people in society, um, we're still here for you. So give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or go online at WNPR.org and support us. Jonathan? Yeah, Betsy Kaplan, you were, you were just talking about how we bring people the important stories. And the thing that I immediately thought, I'm the person in, 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 our, in our meetings who's always arguing for the unimportant stories, the things that, that aren't life and death, that, that won't necessarily change your future, but, but are important anyway. They're, they're, they're the, the things that get us through the day. And uh, one thing I was thinking about is, is last week we did a show about sports, and that's kind of a perfect example of, of a thing that a lot of people don't see as, as urgently important, but there's been a lot of interesting things going on in sports during this period. All of these kinds of things, all of the culture stuff that we, we do, movies and TV shows on the nose. This is this is all the stuff that makes it worth getting through these periods that are strange and difficult like these last few months. So if that means something to you, if you understand that that mix uh, that we put together of medical science and news about politics and government and culture and sports and just crazy stuff that nobody else would do uh, a show about, if that's all meaningful to you, give us a call at 1-800-584-2788. 1-800-584-2788. Make a pledge. It doesn't have to be a huge pledge, but it's important for us to keep this part uh, going because there's uh, this is our model for raising money to do what we do. You can also donate online online at wnpr.org. One thing you should know is that in all of our meetings, one of the conversations we have all the time is, what do they need right now? Do they need something that's a little bit more warm and fuzzy and comforting and distracting? Do they need basic kinds of medical science information? Uh, what can we provide them? What would be meaningful at this moment? Uh, it's really our only mission is to try to figure out what you need and want and give it to you in the best form possible. So one 800 584 2788 or online at wnpr.org if you do if you have thank you so much for your generosity tune into great stories